A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 2 Cairo and the Mecca Pilgrimage, Part 2. Of all the things that people do by way of pleasure, the pursuit of a procession is surely one of the most wearisome. They generally go a long way to see it. They wait a weary time, it is always late, and when at length it does come, it is over in a few minutes. The present pageant fulfilled all these conditions in a superlative degree. We breakfasted uncomfortably early, started soon after half-past seven, and had taken up our position outside the Bob and Nasser on the way to the desert by half-past eight. Here we sat for nearly three hours, exposed to clouds of dust and a burning sun, with nothing to do but watch the crowd and wait patiently. All Shepherd's Hotel was there, and every stranger in Cairo, and we all had smart open carriages drawn by miserable screws and driven by bare-legged Arabs. These Arabs, by the way, are excellent whips, and the screws get along wonderfully, but it seems odd at first, and not a little humiliating, to be whirled along behind a coachman whose only livery consists of a rag of dirty white turban, a scant tunic just reaching to his knees, and the top boots with which nature has provided him. Here, outside the walls, the crowd increased momentarily. The place was like a fair, with provision stalls, swings, story-tellers, serpent-charmers, cake-sellers, sweetmeat-sellers, sellers of sherbet, water, lemonade, sugared nuts, fresh dates, hard-boiled eggs, oranges, and sliced watermelon. Veiled women carrying little bronze cupids of children astride upon the right shoulder, swarthy Egyptians, coal-black Abyssinians, Arabs and Nubians of every shade from golden-brown to chocolate, Fellas, dervishes, donkey-boys, street urchins, and beggars, with every imaginable deformity, came and went, squeezed themselves in and out among the carriages, lined the road on each side of the great towered gateway, swarmed on the top of every wall, and fitted the air with laughter, a babble of dialects, and those odors of Araby that are inseparable from an eastern crowd. A harmless, unsavory, good-humored, inoffensive throng, one glance at which was enough to put to flight all one's preconceived notions about oriental gravity of demeanor. For the truth is that gravity is by no means an oriental characteristic. Take a Mohammedan at his devotions, and he is a model of religious abstraction. Bargain with him for a carpet, and he is, in, and he is as impenetrable as a judge." but see him in his hours of relaxation, or on the occasion of a public holiday, and he is as garrulous and full of laughter as a big child. Like a child, too, he loves noise and movement for the mere sake of noise and movement, and looks upon swings and fireworks as the height of human felicity. Now swings and fireworks are Arabic for bread and circuses, and our plebe's passion for them is insatiable. He not only indulges in them upon every occasion of public rejoicing, but calls in their aid to celebrate the most solemn festivals of his religion. It so happened that we afterwards came in the way of several Mohammedan festivals, both in Egypt and Syria, and we invariably found the swings at work all day and the fireworks going off every evening. Today the swings outside the Bab el Nasser were never idle. Here were creaking Russian swings hung with little painted chariots for the children, 
and plain rope-swings, some of them as high as Hammond's gallows for the men. For my own part I know no sight much more comic and incongruous than the serene enjoyment with which a bearded, turbaned, middle-aged Egyptian squats upon his heels on the tiny wooden seat of one of these enormous swings, and holding on to the side-ropes for dear life goes careering up forty feet high into the air at every turn. At a little before midday, when the heat and glare were becoming intolerable, the swings suddenly ceased going. The crowd surged in the direction of the gate, and a distant drumming announced the approach of the procession. First came a string of baggage camels laden with tent furniture, then some two hundred pilgrims on foot, chanting passages from the Koran, then a regiment of Egyptian infantry, the men in coarse white linen uniform, consisting of coat, baggy trousers, and gaiters, with cross-belts and cartouche-boxes of plain black leather, and the red fez, or tarbouche, on the head. Next after these came more pilgrims, followed by a body of dervishes, carrying green banners embroidered with Arabic sentences in white and yellow. Then a native cavalry regiment, headed by a general, and four colonels in magnificent gold embroidery, and preceded by an excellent military band. Then another band, and a second regiment of infantry, then more colonels, followed by a regiment of lancers mounted on capital grey horses, and carrying lances topped with small red and green pennants. After these had gone by there was a long stoppage, and then, with endless breaks and interruptions, came a straggling, irregular crowd of pilgrims, chiefly of the fella class, beating small darabukas, or native drums. Those about us estimated their number at two thousand and now, their guttural chorus audible long before they arrived in sight, came the howling dervishes, a ragged, wild-looking, ruffianly set, rolling their heads from side to side, and keeping up a hoarse, incessant cry of Allah, Allah, Allah. Of these there may have been a couple of hundred. The sheikhs of the principal orders of dervishes came in next, superbly dressed in robes of brilliant colors embroidered with gold and mounted on magnificent Arabs. Finest of all, in a green turban and scarlet mantle, rode Sheikh of the Hassanin, who is a descendant of the Prophet, but the most important, the Sheikh al-Bakri, who is a sort of Egyptian archbishop of Canterbury and head of all the dervishes, came last, riding a white Arab with gold-embroidered housings. He was a placid-looking old man, and he wore a violet robe and an enormous red and green turban. This very reverend personage was closely followed by the chief of the carpet-maker's guild, a handsome man sitting sideways on a camel. Then came another break in the procession, an eager pause, a gathering murmur. And then, riding a gaunt dromedary at a rapid trot, his fat side shaking and his head rolling in a stupid drunken way at every step, appeared a bloated, half-naked Silenus, with long fuzzy black locks and a triple chin, and no other clothing than a pair of short white drawers and red slippers. A shiver of delight ran through the crowd at the sight of this holy man, the famous sheikh of the camel, sheikh el-gamel, the great good priest, the idol of the people. We afterwards learned that this was his twentieth pilgrimage, and that he was supposed to fast, roll his head, and wear nothing but this pair of loose drawers all the way to and from Mecca but the crowning excitement was yet to come, and the rapture with which the crowd had greeted the Sheikh el-Gamel was as nothing compared with their ecstasy when the Mamal, preceded by another group of mounted officers and borne by a gigantic camel, was seen coming through the gateway. 
the women held up their children, the men swarmed up the scaffolding of the swings and behind the carriages. They screamed, they shouted, they waved handkerchiefs and turbans. They were beside themselves with excitement. Meanwhile the camel, as if conscious of the dignity of his position and the splendor of his trappings, came on slowly and ponderously with his nose in the air, and passed close before our horses' heads. We could not possibly have had a better view of the mamal, which is nothing but a sort of cage or pagoda of gilded tracery very richly decorated. In the days of the mamluks, the mamal represented the litter of the sultan, and went empty, like a royal carriage at a public funeral. But we were told that it now carried the tribute carpet sent annually by the carpet-makers of Cairo to the tomb of the prophet. This closed the procession. As the camel passed, the crowd surged in, and everything like order was at an end. The carriages all made at once for the gate, so meeting the full tide of the outpouring crowd and causing unimaginable confusion. Some stuck in the sand half-way, our own among the number, and all got into an inextricable block in the narrow part just outside the gate. Hereupon the drivers abused each other, and the crowd got impatient, and some Europeans got pelted. Coming back we met two or three more regiments. The men, both horse and foot, seemed fair average specimens, and creditably disciplined. They rode better than they marched, which was to be expected. The uniform is the same for cavalry and infantry throughout the service, the only difference being that the former wear short black riding boots, and the latter suave gaiters of white linen. They are officered up to a certain point by Egyptians, but the commanding officers and the staff, among whom are enough colonels and generals to form an ordinary regiment, are chiefly Europeans and Americans. It had seemed, while the procession was passing, that the proportion of pilgrims was absurdly small when compared with the display of military, but this, which is called the departure of the caravan, is in truth only the procession of the sacred carpet from Cairo to the camp outside the walls, and the troops are present merely as part of the pageant. The true departure takes place two days later. The pilgrims then muster in great numbers, but the soldiery is reduced to a small escort. It was said that seven thousand souls went out this year from Cairo and its neighborhood. The procession took place on Thursday, the 21st of the Mohammedan month of Shawwal, which was our 11th of December. The next day, Friday, being the Mohammedan Sabbath, we went to the convent of the Howling Dervishes which lies beyond the walls in a quiet nook between the riverside and the part known as Old Cairo. We arrived a little after two, and passing through a courtyard shaded by a great sycamore, were ushered into a large, square, whitewashed hall, with a dome roof and a neatly matted floor. The place in its arrangements resembled none of the mosques that we had yet seen. There was, indeed, nothing to arrange, no pulpit, no holy niche, no lamps, no prayer carpets, nothing but a row of cane-bottomed chairs at one end, some of which were already occupied by certain of our fellow-guests at Shepherd's Hotel. A party of some forty or fifty wild-looking dervishes were squatting in a circle at the opposite side of the hall, their outer kuftans and queer pyramidal hats lying in a heap close by. Being accommodated with chairs among the other spectators, we waited for whatever might happen. More dervishes and more English dropped in from time to time. The new dervishes took off their caps and sat down among the rest, laughing and talking together at their ease. The English sat in a row, shy, uncomfortable, and silent, 
wondering whether they ought to behave as if they were in church, and mortally ashamed of their feet. For we had all been obliged to take off or cover our boots before going in, and those who had forgotten to bring slippers had their feet tied up in pocket-handkerchiefs. A long time went by thus. At last, when the number of dervishes had increased to about seventy, and every one was tired of waiting, eight musicians came in, two trumpets, two lutes, a coconut fiddle, a tambourine, and two drums. Then the dervishes, some of whom were old and white-haired and some mere boys, formed themselves into a great circle, shoulder to shoulder, the band struck up a plaintive, discordant air, and a grave middle-aged man, placing himself in the centre of the ring, and inclining his head at each repetition, began to recite the name of Allah. End of section 5